0: Jesus, we praise your wonderful name. We thank you, Lord, for your presence in this place today. And Lord, as we celebrate today that you have risen from the dead and are alive forevermore, seated at the right hand of the Father, we thank you that, Lord, we have risen with you, that we are seated in heavenly places, and Lord, We anticipate the day arriving before us sometime in the future where every knee will bow, where every tongue will confess that we will witness this moment in history and in eternity, where every tongue will confess, they certainly will, that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven the heavenly hosts will gladly declare it. And even on the earth, even those who oppose it will hear it. Will hear their own lips declare it. Jesus Christ is Lord. And even under the earth, every devil in hell and all the dead there will have to say it in one glorious moment. You are Lord, and Lord, we await it eagerly. We await it eagerly. Come on, church. Let's give him thanks for doing what he's done for us. Amen. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Oh, God is so good. I think we should give Dan Daniel a big round of applause as well. First day out, playing for us. Absolutely Wonderful. But you know what? I am so excited this morning about this day as every Easter where we celebrate the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. And when he declared those amazing final words, it is finished. He was not referring to the ending of his life before he laid it down and could take it up again. He was referring to the finished work that he had come to do for the Father on our behalf to restore us back into fellowship with a loving Father that wanted our union so much. And today we celebrate that. Today, we live as a result of what Jesus Christ has done for us in dying and rising from the dead. You know, as I was preparing today for what I'm going to say to you in the time that we have, my mind went back to a story that I've shared lots of times. A story that Charles Spurgeon Spoke about when he was asked to visit an elderly lady in his congregation. She was very poor and infirmed, and one of the parishioners was concerned for her, her well-being. So they asked Mr. Spurgeon, the great English preacher, to go and visit her. And he went. He went into her home, and he was horrified by the conditions that this lady was living in. He looked around the room, and it was dark and dank. She had. Scraps of food lying on the table, not enough to feed her. She barely had any heating. She certainly didn't have any light. And she was living in squalor. And Spurgeon, her pastor, was horrified to see the conditions that this lady, this elderly lady was living in. And as he looked around the room, he saw one solitary picture hanging on the wall. And inside the frame was a legal document. And as he took it off the wall and began to read it, he said, lady, do you realize what's hanging on your wall? And she said, no, Mr. Spurgeon, I can't read. But I hold it and I cherish it because it was given to me by a friend who I served all of my life. And I hold it as a keepsake of her in my memory. And he began to tell her that she held in her house, it was hanging on the wall, the inheritance of untold riches. And he read it to her and he said, by legal right, this is an inheritance that belongs to you. And yet it had hung on the wall and it couldn't come into into action because she didn't understand it. And Mr. Spurgeon says there's no need for you to live in this poverty. There's no need for you to live any longer in this squalor. You have legal right to untold riches. You know, when I was thinking about that, I wonder whether Paul was thinking that when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. As he opens his letter in chapter 1, he begins to tell the Ephesians of untold riches that had been given to them as a result of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you look through all of the letters that the, apostle, the, 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 the apostles wrote throughout the New Testament, there was one central point in all of their letters. It was the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And all of the blessings that come as a result of that to you and me. And Paul looks at the Ephesians and he sees the poverty that they're in. And yet he knows what they're in receipt of. And he says to them, you've obtained, chapter 1, you've obtained the most wonderful inheritance. Oh, very often we live, don't we, in such poverty. We live in such a low place, in such a low level, as if the, the, the inheritance is hanging on the wall, but there's nobody to interpret what's being given to us. And yet Paul comes to the Ephesians and his prayer is this, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that God would actually give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who? In the knowledge of Christ Jesus Because only as we're expanded in our understanding, only as the eyes of our heart are opened, can we truly begin to appreciate and appropriate this wonderful, blessed inheritance that God has given us in Christ. In Christ. You see, Jesus didn't just rise from the dead to prove to everybody that he could rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead so that we could be blessed in an immeasurable way. Now this morning, for the time that we have, I'm going to try and it's going to be an impossible job. But just to describe to you what God has done for you in Christ. We're going to look, like I said a few weeks ago, just through the keyhole. That's all you're going to get this morning is a little keyhole glimpse, a little fragment, a little crumb. But if you take that crumb and you eat it and you appropriate it and it begins to saturate your understanding, saturate your spirit, I'm telling you now, you'll never be the same. Paul encountered this change when he spoke, saying, it is no longer I that live but Christ that lives in me. That wasn't a work of discipline. That wasn't a work of prayer. That was a reality of the power of the Spirit working in his life. It's no longer I that live. You don't have to live any longer. Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. Now to help us look at the wonderful blessing that has occurred for us. As a result of Jesus dying and rising from the dead, we're going to turn to Romans and we're going to read from Romans chapter 4, one verse, verse 25. And in this one verse, it's amazing how the Apostle Paul does this on so many occasions in one verse, in one line, two lines at most. He encapsulates everything that's achieved by the cross and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Verse four, uh, Chapter 4, verse 25 says this, Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification, Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised... Because of our justification. Thousands of years before Paul wrote this amazing revelation for us, Job questioned God. And he says this, How, God, can a man be justified and made righteous before you? It's an age-old question. How God, can a man be justified and made righteous before you? You can go through every single religion in this world, and every single one are seeking the answer to this age-old question. How can a man be justified before a holy God? How can sinful man be made righteous? It's an age-old question. You look up and down the religions of this world and not one of them will be able to give you a line of truth like the Apostle Paul gave to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 4 verse 25. Why? For two reasons. Firstly, because none of them have a Savior. None of them. Look through all of the religions of the world. Not one of them have one central figure, the God-man Christ in the flesh as a Savior and one who once and for all time died as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of those he was seeking to save. No religion offers that to any one of us. They offer you works, they offer you discipline, they offer you modes of prayer, but none of them can point to one figure, the God-man Christ, and direct you to have faith and trust in what he has done. And in having believed what he has done, bring salvation and forgiveness and justification. Only Jesus, only him do we look to, do we ascribe with our praise. How can a man be justified? Job says, how? I know the tendency that I have for sin and not only the tendency, I'm riddled with the stuff, riddled with it. How can I be made righteous? How can I be justified? And in two lines, the Apostle Paul answers the age-old question and he sums it up in Jesus Christ, in him and in him alone. Now, there's some words in the Bible. I'm sure you'll, you'll know this as you read the Bible. You know, I certainly do. As you read the Bible, you know, sometimes the Bible uses some really big words. Sometimes there's words in the Bible that can sound very complicated. But you know what? These words are so important. Very important. And, and you know, we're going to look at this word for a moment, this word justification, because it's such an important word. Maybe you've seen it in the Bible as you've read it, and you've never truly understood it. But only as you begin to understand this word, justification, you've been Christ has been raised for your justification, for my justification. Only as we begin to understand this word will we truly understand the wonderful freedom that you and I have been given. Paul uses this word. What does he mean when he uses this word justification? Well, this word is taken from the law court. It belongs in the courtroom. It's a legal term. And by using this word, Paul is saying this. Your life and my life has already, listen, has already been examined by God. Your life has already come under close, exact examination by God. You have already been judged by the judge of all the earth. By the judge who is perfect, righteous, holy, beyond knowing, he has already examined your life, he has already collected all of the facts about your life and my life, and he has judged it, and he has pronounced a once for all time, forever verdict concerning your life. It's important that you understand that you've been judged, and a verdict. Has been pronounced. And that verdict, do you know what? Times and circumstances may change, but there is one thing that cannot change, and that is the word of God over your life. God has pronounced a judgment, God has pronounced a verdict over you and I. God, when speaking about himself and disclosing himself to his people in the Old Testament, said this I am the Lord, I change not. I change not. I'm telling you now, that refers to his nature and that refers to any decision that he makes regarding the creature that he redeems, namely our lives. So a verdict has been pronounced over your life. Decisions have been made. God, in all of his wisdom, has scrutinized you. Justification is a forensic term. It's God going to the nth degree to collect all of the facts about you and me. Every single fact, detail, time, place, and event where you've been and where you will be and where you are has all been collected before him. It's a forensic term. And God has done all of this, and this is what Paul is saying when he uses this term justification. Imagine, imagine, your life has already been inspected by a holy, perfect God. Your life has already had a verdict over it. Your life has already had a declaration made about it from God from God now there's two aspects to this word justification really important we understand them two component parts of this one word right now remember what Paul said he's been raised for our justification okay if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ you're justified okay you're justified There's two component parts to this word justification. The first one is this. Now this is the verdict over your life. Right? Ready? Not guilty. Number one. Not guilty. That's the first component part of justification. You're not guilty. That means you're pardoned from all sin. Okay? And you're actually pardoned from the penalty of sin. Judgment and a verdict has been made over your life. You're justified. You're not guilty. You're pardoned from all sin. And furthermore, in this first component, this is what it means. You're innocent. Innocent of all wrongdoing. Completely innocent. Second component part, because do you know what? If it was just about not being guilty, I'd be happy with that. I would be so happy with just not being guilty. I would be so happy to be innocent in God's presence. I'd be so happy for that just to be the verdict about my life and your life. But there's far more than that. God goes far, far beyond what we can ask or expect or even think or imagine. That's one of the the aspects of of his love and his nature. It goes way, way, way beyond what we can ever understand or appreciate. The first aspect of justification is you're not guilty. You're pardoned. There's no penalty of sin for you to fear. No penalty at all. The second, the second component of this wonderful word is this. You've been made righteous. Righteous. And not just with a human righteousness, you are the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You really are. Completely perfect in Him. Perfect. Not a flaw. And the way that the Father looks at Jesus, He looks at you. The, the, the way that the father speaks over Jesus when he was risen out of the waters of baptism. Behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now the father can look at you and I and, and give that same word of approval. That's my daughter. That's my son. Behold, I'm well pleased in them. Why? Because we're righteous, not guilty. Justified as a result of his resurrection. So what's the timescale of this? You know, are you, are you justified as God observes your behavior? Are you justified as a, as a result of being, you know, good at praying or good at Bible reading? No, justification is immediate, justification is instantaneous. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who has taken your your offenses and sins on the cross, instantaneously and immediately you are justified in him, declared not guilty, the verdict over your life is complete, unalterable, you are made righteous in God. Wonderful. That's why after this wonderful statement that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4 verse 25. This is why he goes on in the next chapter. Of course, there were no chapters in his letter. It was just one continuous revelation. There was no interruption of chapter 4 into chapter 5. When he goes into chapter 5, he says, therefore, and whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you have to ask why it's therefore. It's referring, it's referring to the lines just preceding it. He says, Where, therefore, having been justified, how? By prayer? No. By discipline? No. By being perfect? No. By faith. By faith, by simple trust in what Jesus has done. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the moment, oh, the moment when you just put your faith in what Jesus has done for your life. The, 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 the filling of his peace is incredible. The lifting of guilt off your life, the lifting of shame, the lifting of the power of an old existence outside of God goes. And your faith in Christ brings peace with God, and there's an immediate union of relationship that you've been looking for all of your life. And we can all testify to that. Justified by faith. Now, this is all wonderful. This is all incredible. But the question is this. This is the question that troubles us, troubles you, and it troubles me. This is the question. How? How? How can God justify us? Read Romans 1, 2, and 3. And you'll begin to hear Paul's description of human life. Every time I read those, those first three chapters, the description of, of, of life outside of Christ... It's awful. The description of human existence where man is and woman are doing their own thing and hell bent on going down a road to destruction. It's awful. It's an it's 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 an awful dialogue that Paul has with us in those first 3 chapters but do you know what it's the truth. It's the truth. So how, the question is, how can a man or a woman be justified when we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? And the Bible says in the, in the chapters preceding this, there is none righteous, no, not one. So this is the dilemma. How? How can it be? Well, there's another amazing Bible word, a big word that's incredible, that, is used very often in the New Testament to tell us how. How can God justify the unrighteous when there is none righteous? And the word is this, imputation. Imputation. It's a big word. What does it mean? Imputation is an incredible word. It's a very important word. In Romans chapter 4, the chapter that we've read, it occurs 11 times. And you might not have recognized it when you've read this chapter before because translators translate it in different ways like counted. Imputation means that something has been counted to your account. Or accounted, reckoned, or credited. If justification is a word that's taken from the law courts, imputation and reckon is taken from the world of accountancy. God becomes now not just this judge that judges exactly and forensically. God now becomes this accountant that sums up and totals up all of the figures and calculates all of the aspects to make it work in your favor. Imputation. It means this very simply. There was a great exchange of accounts. That my sin and my death was accounted to Christ's account, and Christ's righteousness and perfection was counted and reckoned to my account. There's an amazing literal story of this happening in the Bible. Paul is in prison. And he writes this letter to a friend and a brother called Philemon. And Philemon is a great friend and a great servant with Paul. And Paul, whilst he was in prison, had met this man, this slave called Onesimus. And Onesimus had run away from Philemon. And Paul had met, in the purpose of God, Onesimus in the prison cell. And. Ananias encounters Jesus. Paul leads him to Christ right there in the cell. And then he begins to talk about Ananias's responsibility to return honorably to Philemon. So Paul writes this letter to Philemon. And he says this to him. He says, listen, Ananias is coming back to you. He's a changed man. He's received Christ. He's been such a blessing and a help to me. Reach out to him. Accept him. Treat him as a brother, not as a slave. But then he says this if he owes you anything, this is the literal meaning of imputation. If he owes you anything, Philemon, reckon it to my account. Basically, Paul is saying this I'll pay his bill. I'll pay his debt so that he can have a future without any worry, without any concern. I'm telling you something now. God in Christ did far more than Paul did for Onesimus. God in Christ through the shedding of his own blood. In fact, the, 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 the epistles tell us that our lives were so precious that they were not bought with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God has done so much more. He's imputed righteousness to us as a result of what Jesus Christ has done so that we would not have to worry about the future you wouldn't have to worry about the past either imputed righteousness 2 corinthians 5 verse 21 paul says this to a church that's struggling for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us bank transfer friends right there from one account that was in the red and way overdrawn to another account that was full and did not deserve anything that it was about to take he made him to know who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god in him hallelujah hallelujah Romans chapter 8, we could go through chapter after chapter, through verse after verse, and what we, what we would see is everything is centralized in this wonderful, wonderful reality in history where Jesus died and rose from the dead, and as a result, we are the inheritors of untold riches. We have got to appropriate it, believe it, believe it. And live in the reality of it. Romans 8, verse 31 to 35 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? And then this is a wonderful statement. It says, who shall bring a charge? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's God who pronounces you and I not guilty. The verdict has been placed once and forever. It cannot be changed. You're not guilty. You're free from the penalty of sin. It's God who justifies. You've been made righteous in Christ as a result of his imputation Not of works, lest any man should boast, but by simple faith in him. Nobody can bring a charge against God's elect. You can't even bring a charge against yourself. God's done a complete and perfect work. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And then he finally says this, who shall separate us? You see, this is an act of love. This is the length that love will go to. This is how deep it will go. This is how far it will go. It will not leave your life in any way, shape, or form in the way that it finds it. Who shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nothing can separate us from his love. I'm going to ask the musicians to come in a moment. We're going to, we're going to close. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 we got another amazing chapter about love. It describes the love of God, really. And it, it talks about love being patient and love being kind and love bearing long. And so many wonderful descriptions in, 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 in that chapter. And Paul, towards the end of that chapter, that we know as 1 Corinthians chapter 13, says this. When I was a child... I thought like a child, but when I became fully grown, when I became a man, I thought differently. And he begins to talk about how we grow and how we mature and how life as a Christian is constantly this wonderful discovery, this wonderful disclosure of blessing after blessing after blessing that God has given us in Christ Jesus. There's a little line in there that I've thought about for years now, and it's always blessed me. It's always been a a wonderful, wonderful blessing to think about. And he says this He says, One day, one day, we will know as we are known. One day. We will know as we are known. You see, I know Dave Edwards because Dave Edwards has been on the earth for 48 years. I have records about Dave Edwards. I can recite memory after memory after memory and moment after moment about Dave Edwards' life because I've got 48 years of history wrapped up in this body. Like you have. But there are things about Dave Edwards that I don't know. That Paul is talking about. And those things are in Christ Jesus. You see, when God looks at me and when God looks at you, He doesn't look at you as you know yourself. He knows you in a way that's perfect in Christ. And one day when we rise in Him, one day when we are far, far from this fallen earth, we will suddenly know as we are known. Paul describes to us exactly how God knows us in Christ, not guilty, pardoned, innocent, made righteous. Finally we're gonna close, gonna pray. I heard a story of a little boy and he had a No, it wasn't you, James. It could have been though, because you're a brilliant boy. Little boy had a pot of honey. He took the top off the honey and he dipped his fingers into the honey and he put his fingers in his mouth and he savoured the taste. Oh he loved honey. He put his fingers in again to the honey, put his fingers to his mouth. And he just enjoyed the honey. And there was a man looking at the little boy, putting his fingers in the honey. He couldn't stop it. He was just having the time of his life enjoying the honey. The man went up to him and he said, Son, can you describe to me the taste of the honey? And the little boy looked at him with honey all over his lips. And he said, oh, it's sweet It's sweet. And the man looked at him and he said, no, son. He said, I didn't ask you to tell me if it's sweet. I ask you to describe it to me. Describe it a little bit more than it's sweet. And the little boy looked at the man as he put his fingers in his mouth again. He said, it's very sweet. It's really sweet. And the man said, no. He said, I want more from you. Tell me what the honey tastes like and the little boy couldn't understand what the what the man was saying and the description that he was calling for so he just held out the honey pot and he said sir i don't know how to describe what you're asking me to describe you just better put your fingers into the pot yourself and taste it and you know what i can try and describe this stuff to you like any other person can I can try and describe to you the peace that comes as a result in that moment where you put your faith in Jesus and you leave an old life behind and you're set free forevermore into newness of life and new relationship with him. I can describe it to you all day long, but the description will always fall inadequately. You just got to dip your fingers in the honey of salvation you just got to put your hand in all of the provisions that Jesus Christ has done for you not by your works not by your performance but by simple faith in Him and suddenly you'll taste the sweetness of peace you'll taste the sweetness and the goodness of His love in an empty heart I was in a tent guilt ridden Covered with shame, I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I was completely clean on the inside. Suddenly, how does that happen? I can't give you a scientific dis- dissertation as to that, how that happens, and nobody else can. It's supernatural, it's God by His Spirit coming to live in your heart forevermore, and there's nothing like it. Nothing like it, and right now. Maybe today you want to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You know what? The moment you do, you may already have. The moment you place your faith in Him, there's a verdict that's going to go right across as headlines over your life forevermore. Not guilty innocent, pardoned of the penalty of sin, made righteous in God so that you can hold your head up high. And for some of us here today, maybe we're like that lady in the room just looking at that picture in memory and holding it as a keepsake. I'm telling you now, the Word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It will deal with every guilty thought. It will deal with the heaviness of shame. It will deal with the words of an accuser. You are justified forevermore child of God amen let's close our eyes we're going to pray and right now I'm going to give you an opportunity just to place your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ you say Dave how do I do that well you're exercising your trust and your faith very simply right now by sitting in the seat that you're that you sat in you're putting your life weight on that seat. You don't expect the seat to collapse. And that's what you're going to do right now. You're going to put your faith in Jesus Christ. The life weight that you carry, all of the past events that have, that have followed you and stalked you up until this day. You're going to put your faith in Jesus because he died for your offenses. He was raised for your justification. And as you do that, as you place faith in him, you will, you will have peace with God. You really will. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray and I'm going to help you. The Bible says, call on the name of the Lord and you and I shall be saved. Pray this prayer with me. It's just going to direct your trust and your faith and place it in the Saviour, Jesus Christ. Pray this, Jesus, quietly in your heart. Jesus, I call on you from the bottom of my heart. Please forgive me of my sin. Thank you for carrying all of my sin on the cross. I put my trust and my faith in you right now. And I believe that as I do, I am justified, not guilty, pardoned of sin, made righteous in you. And I have peace with God. While eyes are closed, if you prayed that prayer, would you quickly lift your hand up? I'll see it. We'll pass you a Bible. Maybe you're here for the first time today. There's a lady here. That's it. That's it. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's it. There's a gentleman at the back. That's it, sir. We'll get you a Bible. All we want to do is put a Bible in your hand. And we'd love to see you beyond this service today, maybe next week and the weeks. Just keep coming. And there's a gentleman there. That's it. That's it, sir. Don't be afraid. A gentleman there with his hand. That's it. Is there anybody else? You placed your faith in Jesus this morning. Now you're not guilty, free from sin. There's a, a lady there. That's it, my love. That's it. Is there anybody else? You prayed a prayer, placing your faith in Jesus this morning. The Bible says now you can reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. These are supernatural things that are very, very powerful that we enjoy and walk in every day. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to sing, going to close in a moment. Father, I thank you today for your people. And Lord, I thank you. We can come boldly before your throne of grace. And we can come boldly because there is no guilt. There is no fear as we appear before you. We are set free from sin and its effects. And we thank you forevermore. We are justified by faith. And we have peace with God. Come on, church. Lift your voice. Let's give Him praise in this place.